Welcome to episode 31 of Mike's Notes. Today, a few lessons from the paranoid Andy Grove. Andy Grove, of course, wasn't paranoid, but that's the title of one of his books, that only the paranoid survive. And we're going to look at Grove because in that book he shares a few different lessons for things that we've seen over and over in this podcast. And as we say, that things that are true over time and over domains are things that are probably going to hold to be true. If you don't know Grove, he was the chief executive officer of Intel. Before that, he was president. Um, He also worked at Fairchild Semiconductor. And he was an immigrant from Hungary who graduated from the City College of New York. So Grove's experience is really an interesting one. It's one where he traversed the immigrant journey and he also wrote on the Silicon Valley wave. So Grove had a few different things working for him and working against him. But the central premise to the book that we're going to look at, Only the Paranoid Survive, is that Grove tries to figure out what is a strategic inflection point and what that means for a business or what that means for a person. This is how Grove describes it. Quote, Strategic inflection points are full-scale changes in the way business is conducted, so that simply adopting new technology or fighting the competition as you used to may be insufficient, end quote. So these are big changes in something. These are 10x changes. A technology change might be how the internet has changed e-commerce. That's a, a big change. Another one that Grove points out might be what happens when Walmart comes to a small town. I live in one of those small towns that has a Walmart in it, and there are certain businesses that left or expired or had to consolidate different locations. So Walmart is an example of uh, when that happens. There's other examples that Grove looks at in his book. And he points out that these strategic inflection points, these moments when there is a 10x change, are never announced. They never come in loudly. In fact, Grove writes that they, quote, approach on little cat feet, end quote. All you really know is that something different has occurred, but you don't necessarily know what the different thing is, just that there was a shift. You faced a fork in the road and you went one way versus another way. And these moments are important because if you can get them right, if you can nail a strategic inflection point, you can have an advantage early on. We talk, we've talked a few times here about the idea of surfing and being a first mover in a situation. And we think there are advantages if you're first and you can hold that position. So in surfing, it means you get to the beach early, you're one of the first ones there, but you also know how to surf. And that comes from a mental model that Charlie Munger advocates, that if you can stay on the wave, if you can not get knocked off your leadership position, you'll be okay. But once you get knocked off, it's really hard to get back in that leadership position position again. So if you can be first in something, that is if you can nail the strategic inflection point, if you can jump off ahead of everybody else to where the puck is going rather than where it is, you'll probably be more successful. It worked for Walmart getting into small towns. Charlie Munger points out that Walmart refined their business model the way a boxer might uh, approach a championship bout, where a boxer can knock out 
45 nobodies in practice and have his weaknesses exposed by lesser competition before they step into the ring with someone that's uh, at their same weight or their same talent level. And Munger says that Walmart did the same thing. Walmart went into all these little towns where JCPenney's and Kmart and other stores like that were not. And so they established a foothold. They mastered their logistics before they really took on a heavy competition. And so these strategic inflection points are opportunities for people to do that, to get on to the next thing. In today's podcast, we're going to look at four things, four aspects of strategic inflection points and how Grove suggests businesses and people handle them. Because these strategic inflection points don't only happen to businesses, they happen to people as well. Having kids is a really obvious strategic inflection point that I kind of missed out on. I thought when we had our two kids that things wouldn't change as much as they did. It was a strategic inflection point where, as far as my career goes, I didn't skate to where the puck was going to be. I skated to where I thought it was. And that was a small mistake, but it happened on a personal level. Grove writes that, quote, Your career is literally your business. You own it as a sole proprietor. You have one employee, yourself, end quote. So even Grove is is suggesting here that if your company is facing a strategic inflection point, you may be also facing a strategic inflection point. He tells the story of a newspaper friend who originally was a stockbroker, but he failed at that. And so he went on to become a banker. And as a stockbroker, he didn't see the winds of change blowing. But as a banker, he did. And as a banker, he was able to successfully switch to becoming a journalist. And that's what we need to think about on our career level as well. If you're facing a strategic inflection point, you can apply these same four principles. So what are those principles? Number one, you have to be there to know what's going on. Number two, you have to embrace and empower a devil's advocate in your business and your life. Number three, decentralized command is a powerful tool for getting strategic inflection points right. And number four, people are involved and people have emotions and you have to remember that. Ready? One. When things are about to change, you have to be there. You have to be in the field so that you're getting the right information. It's all about seeing the information as it is and not as it is filtered, especially if you're in an organization. Grove wrote, quote, Our IT manager said, well, that guy is always the last to know. He, like most CEOs, is in the center of a fortified palace, and news from the outside has to percolate through layers of people from the periphery where the action is, end quote. Each layer between, between the C-suite or management and the customer is a layer where filters naturally happen. You have to filter information out. That's exactly why you hire middle managers to make the little day-to-day decisions, to make the um, allocation of resources better. As a, You can't do everything as a supervisor. Trent Griffin put it this way, quote, as a manager, you can't review everything, end quote. So you have to trust in your middle managers, but you also have to know that they are filtering out some information. So how, how do you get around that? How do you expose yourself to customers? How do you better understand that? Grove has an idea. Quote, we need to expose ourselves to customers. We need to expose ourselves to lower level employees. We must invite comments even from people whose job it is to constantly evaluate and critique us. 
such as journalists and members of the financial community, end quote. So this is going to dovetail into the second point. But to stay on the first point here, you have to be there. You have to be where the customers are and talk to the customers. You have to be on the floor of your facility. You have to go on sales calls. We saw this with Neville Istel in a previous episode of this podcast when he wrote about one night when he was route riding in the all-black townships of South Africa and he was observing what was happening in the marketplace when his salesman went about his normal job. He looked to see if the trucks were painted properly. He looked to see if the Coca-Cola coolers had peeling paint or not. He looked to see how everything was displayed. He had to be there. And sometimes being there can be really dangerous. In Estelle's case, he was uh, working in a black township of South Africa, and it was illegal for uh, a white person to be there after a certain time of day. And uh, Estelle escaped some very close calls sometimes. One night he remembers returning home in the morning and he turned on the TV and he had been in the same township where riots had broken out all over the place and he had barely escaped them. And this was true for wherever Istel went. Uh, when he traveled through East Germany, he was um, suspected as being an imperialist, as a capitalist from the people who were in charge there. When he drove through the Philippines, the roads were mucked up and dangerous. When he drove around Australia, there were all kinds of challenges with that. But he had to be there. He had to see what was going on. There was power in that information because otherwise he would get the filtered version. And that's not the version you need for decision making. My favorite example of this comes from the Rich Cohen book, The Fish That Ate the Whale, which is the story of Samuel Zamuri. And it makes the entire industry of bananas entirely interesting. And it's just a lovely book, but this is, this is the one part from the book that, um, one of my favorite parts, this is about being there and how Samuel Zamuri, the man who would come to dominate uh, the banana imports in the United States of America, this is how he, uh, he approached being there. Quote, Zamuri worked in the fields beside his engineers, planters, and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat-covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes, clear the weeds, lay the track. He was a proficient snake killer. Taller than most of his workers, as strong and thin as a railroad spike, he shouted orders in dog Spanish. He believed in the transcendent power of physical labor, that a man can free his soul only by exhausting his body. A life in an office, desk-bound, was for the feeble and weak who cut themselves off from the actual. He ate outside shark fin soup, plantains, crab gumbo, sour wine. His years in the jungle gave him experience rare in the trade. Unlike most of his competitors, he understood every part of the business, from the executive suite where the stock was manipulated to the ripening room where the green fruit turned yellow. He was contemptuous of banana men who spent their lives in the north, far from the plantations. Those schmucks, what do they know? They're there, we're here. End quote. And that is just one little vignette from a book that is great. And Zamuri's entire career, his entire ascendancy of the banana trade was all about being there, where he started at the bottom. He started as a fruit jobber. And a jobber in the 1920s was a sort of a, um, a diminutive term. It was like a put down. If you were a jobber, that just means you had a cart and you had produce and you walked around and you tried to sell it. But Zamuri worked his way up from a cart to a train car to a ship and then eventually a plantation. And each stage of that, he was there. He was on the ground. He was 
part of the experience to really get a deep understanding. Wesley Gray also saw this in another previous podcast focus when he was in Iraq. He saw that the things he learned in his version of the C-suite, that is, school, was not exactly what he saw on the ground. He had to be there to gain that experience. This doesn't mean that the people on the ground, the people that are there, are always right. It's just an unfiltered data point, and sometimes they'll give you bad information, and sometimes the people on the ground will give you good information. This is how Growth puts it. Quote, I feel much safer back here in California than he does in enemy territory, but is my perspective the right one? or is his, end quote. So the goal is to see the way the wind is blowing. It's to figure out if your customers are asking a certain kind of question. It's to see if the people you are supplying are happy with your product or want changes with it or something else. A strategic inflection point is a situation where change may be about to occur in a big way, where there's a 10x change. It's when Walmart comes to your town. It's when the internet arrives and starts to distribute digital music. It's the big moments, and you need to have your ear to the ground to see if one of those is coming up. Two. If being there is getting the data, then having a devil's advocate is what you do with the data. This is how uh, Grove explains what they did at Intel. Quote, we developed a style of ferociously arguing with one another while remaining friends. We call this constructive confrontation, end quote. The idea was is that you could have a knockdown, drag out argument with somebody and focus on your point and try to beat theirs down, but still go get hamburgers and a beer with them after work. Grove wrote that Intel mastered this kind of an argument. And you have to have these kind of arguments. You have to forge this idea in a state of stress. Hence the title of the book, Only the Paranoid Survive. If you're just having normal everyday conversations, you're not being paranoid enough about what's going on with your suppliers or your customers or your employees or your uh, systems or the people that help you do business. Not every middle manager or plant operator or piece operator is going to be right. So you need to, quote, identify a particular development as a strategic inflection point as part of a broad and intensive debate, end quote. That's from Grove. What I love so much about this book was how much Grove is a practitioner, how much of this was written from the trenches. And so the first version of this book came out in 1996. The paperback that I have is copyright 1999. And this was really pre-internet days. It was pre-bubble uh, days. It was before we really knew the internet would become the thing that it ultimately became. The thing that allows uh, me to share a podcast with you with relatively no experience or tools required. But, but at, the inter- at the time Grove write- writes this, the internet isn't the thing that it's about to become. And it's not sure that it's going to be the thing that it becomes. And um, there's one chapter where he writes about the internet. And this is how he closes out the chapter. This is a couple of paragraphs. Quote, It is likely that the internet appliance is a case of turning the clock backward, given that the trend over the last 20 to 30 years has consisted of pulling down intelligence from big computers to little ones. I don't believe that the internet is about to reverse this trend. But then again, my genes were formed by those same 20 or 30 years, and I'm likely to be the last one to know. 
end quote. So what Grobe is saying here is that he thinks the internet is going to uh, be a place where we have smaller, the consumer has smaller and smaller devices that access something big. But he says that his experience leads to that conclusion, but that he could be wrong. So Grove is pointing out that his 20 to 30 years were pre-inflection point, and things could switch a lot post-inflection point. This is how he continues, quote, So I think there is one more step for Intel to take to prepare ourselves for the future, and I think we should take it now while our market momentum is stronger than ever. I think we should put together a group to build the best inexpensive internet appliance that can be built around an Intel microchip. Let this group try to derail our strategies themselves. Let them be our own Cassandras. Let them be the first to tell us whether this can be done and whether what I now think is noise is, in fact, a strong signal that, once again, something has changed, end quote. So Grove is proposing here that Intel create their own devil's advocate. They create an internal group that builds a thing that he doesn't think can happen. And Intel was a great place to do this. They were full of smart people. They had been on the cutting edge of technology for years. But he knows that all of those years of being on the cutting edge are exactly what would lead them to miss a strategic inflection point. Over and over in the book, Grove points out that the people most resistant to strategic inflection points are people that are having the most success currently. They're the ones who want things to continue as they are because things are really good. This reminded me a lot of Clayton Christensen's work on disruption and the innovator's dilemma. And if we can briefly summarize Christensen's work, it's that uh, disruption occurs when the top company is most profitable. And he saw this in a variety of areas, such as music or technology, any area where things are about to change, any area where there's about to be a 10x shift, the best years for a company are always the years when things are starting to change under their feet. They're profitable, but uh, the underlying business has changed. It's when Walmart comes into town. And so Grove is saying that his experiences were when things were great. But if there's a big change coming, maybe those are the wrong experiences for the situation. Other successful organizations suggest a devil's advocate too. Ben Horowitz is a disciple of Grove and someone who has written a lot about him and also worth reading. If you liked Grove's book, Only the Paranoid Survive, or this podcast, you should check out Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Horowitz teamed up with Mark Andreessen to start the uh, A16Z venture capital company. And Andreessen was on the Tim Ferriss podcast to talk about how they do uh, the devil's advocate role, how they figure out how to get this pushback, how to sharpen the stick by having countervailing forces. And this is what Andreessen said. It's the responsibility of everybody else in the room to stress test the thinking. And if necessary, we actually create a, we create a red team, right? We'll actually formally create sort of the countervailing force and we'll, we'll designate some set of people uh, to counter argue the other side. The way that we try to, you know, and this is fraught with like, there's all kinds of ways this can go wrong because like, what if I bring in a deal or what if Ben brings in a deal or what, you know, versus the new person bringing a deal or whatever. Um, and so what Ben and I try to do is we, 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 we do this to each other, right? And so whenever he brings in a deal, like I just beat the shit out of it, right? Just like, and I may think it's the best idea I've ever heard of and I'll just like trash the crap out of it, right? And try to get everybody else to pile on. 
I really like how Andreessen says that he just gets everybody else to pile on to an idea no matter what he thinks about it. That's that's just wonderful. And that's a good application of the uh, of the idea of a devil's advocate. You need to have some power on each side. That Andreessen takes the other side. I think that's on purpose. I don't know anything about A16Z, but you need to have the two founders on opposite sides of an idea because you need people to believe that they can take either side. You don't want people to be worried about their own career capital. You want those people to be worried about sharing good ideas. We saw this in the previous episode of this podcast when we talked about the UNC soccer coach Anson Dorrance, who has his assistant coach Bill Palladino. And Palladino says in the book that's about them, quote, no one else is going to say no to Anson, end quote. So as the head coach, Dorrance has this position of authority. He has this condition where people naturally listen to him. But he also has Palladino who will push back against him. Bob Seawright said about his investment firm that you need to empower people to take the other side or your devil's advocate is just going to be a paper man. It's going to be a straw man. There's not going to be anything of substance there. This section of the book, when when uh, Grove talks about having a devil's advocate, reminded me a lot about watching football as a kid. I remember in the late 80s, in the early 90s, through the mid-90s, that there was this idea that you had to run the football, that, that you had to have a balanced running attack and passing attack to succeed in football games. And as we turned into the 2000s and then through the 2010s, we can see that football was going to a place where passing teams dominated, where elite quarterbacks were what you really needed to win football games. And that seems to me like a strategic inflection point, where the style and strategy of football went a 10x revolution. It changed in terms of the conditioning and the nutrition and the quality of players. It changed in the strategy and how much investment the coaches put into it and a whole host of other things. And looking back on those broadcasts that I watched about football, it seems like the people who were advocating for a balanced running and passing attack who said that you had to run the football. It seemed like those people were like Grove and that they were lying on the past 20 years where an inflection point was coming up and that's exactly when you can't rely on the past to move forward. Three. Another great aspect of Grove's book was his failability, that he doesn't take credit for everything that went well at Intel when he was there. This reminded me a lot of Phil Knight in his book, Shoe Dog, where Knight says that he remembers things a certain way, uh, but it may have been different. And he did this, which may have helped lead to a successful outcome, rather than a perfect causality of, I did this, and then this happened, and it was obviously all because of me. Not all business books are like this. I remember reading a book a while ago about a CEO who was just like a god. He was the perfect explainer for everything that had happened and every good decision was his and every poor decision wasn't his. And Grove doesn't suffer from that. He really seems to portray an honest and clear and truthful 
insight into what it was like at Intel. When he writes about profiting from strategic inflection points, he points out the value of the frontline people. This is what he wrote. Quote, the production numbers got there by the autonomous actions of the finance and production planning people who sat around painstakingly allocating wafer production capacity month by month. End quote. So here Grove is pointing out that as Intel switched from uh, one business strategy to another business strategy, they had these silicone uh, wafers that they had to decide whether or not it was going to be built into strategy A or built into strategy B, where A was the old and B was the new. And he says that these middle managers looked at what was profitable, and they started to begin the strategic inflection point. This is what we mean when we have to say being there. Grove went out to the factories. He talked to these middle managers. He talked to these production people, and he saw that their numbers, their data, their unfiltered information was telling them that they should make more of B and less of A. And that helped to fill in the story of the strategy. That gave the strategy that Grove was developing a backbone. It was the information that he needed. This is what he writes. Quote, the process of adapting to change starts with employees who, through their daily work, adjust to the new outside forces, end quote. You have to trust the people you work for, and you have to get good people in their situations. The Skunk Works team that built the U-2 bomber and the Blackbird spy plane trusted their people. The supervisor there, Kelly Johnson, said that you were going to build it, and he was going to trust you to build it well. Nike had it. Knight wrote that he just let some of his employees be, doing the best they could. He remembers visiting one of the early Nike stores. This was somewhere in California, while Nike was headquartered in Oregon. And he walked in, and he was just amazed at what this place looked like. There were shoes everywhere, but there was also running... Uh, Newspaper clippings, there was journal articles, there was books. It, it was like this running hub where one of the things they did was selling shoes. And it was nothing that Knight could have imagined. It was not what he would have expected the store to look like. But he was glad that that's how the store ended up coming, coming out. It was uh, a good situation. Jocko Willink a uh, former Navy SEAL, is always advocating for decentralized command. That is to trust the people on the front lines to make good choices and to do the work to the best of their ability. When Louis C.K. made his show Horace and Pete, he embraced decentralized command when he sort of just let his actors do what they wanted to do. He said about Alan Alda that he never could have seen Alda in the role that he ended up playing, but he totally made the role his own, and he did a better job than Louis ever could have predicted. He used decentralized command to let Alda be the best version of that character that he could. So how do you do this? How do you create decentralized command in an organization? How do you allow people to make their own choices and to succeed in their own way? Well, to start, you can treat them like kids. Kids love to explore the world, but don't always know things that they should or shouldn't do. They don't know that they shouldn't get in strangers' cars or stick things in outlets or click on links online. Parents let them spread their wings in stages. Step by step, they get to do a little bit more as they sort of prove themselves. But you can't be a helicopter parent through all this. You need to let them fail in some ways and let them learn and let them develop uh, signals and ideas for how they should act. 
Anson Dorrance did this too with his soccer team, where he created artificial chaos so his team was prepared. They would sometimes run late to games. They would schedule long road trips. They would have intense drills at practice. And each one of those things was a, a way for Dorrance to get his players to acclimate to a certain situation. He was training them in the confines of practice to be able to act a certain way in games. They had decentralized command in practice, and when something didn't go right, he nudged them in a different direction so that in games, they could have a similar decision-making process available to them. And uh, Grove suggests much the same thing. This is what he writes. Quote, Resolution of strategic dissonance does not come in the form of a figurative light bulb going on. It comes through experimentation. Loosen up the level of control that your organization normally is accustomed to. Let people try different techniques, review different products, exploit different sales channels, and go after different customers. Much as management has been devoted to making and keeping order in the company, at times like this, they must become more tolerant of the new and the different. Only stepping out of the old ruts will bring new insights. The operating phrase should be, let chaos reign, end quote. Grove here is pointing out that you need to let people experiment to get this strategic inflection point right. You know things are going to change, but you don't know which direction they're going to change. He compares it to walking through a uh, valley of death or a desert. And what you want is you don't know which way to get out of the desert. You need to let people experiment and pick a direction and make many guesses at directions. But once you pick your direction, you need to go. You need to charge forward. So as you approach what might be a strategic inflection point, you let chaos reign and you collect a lot of different ideas and possibilities. But once you hit what's the strategic inflection point, and Grove writes that people usually act too late rather than too early, once you get to that point, you need to try and drive forward as long and as fast as and as hard as you can. As we talk about these issues, remember that they apply as much to a company as they apply to an individual. Whatever your job is, whatever role you're in, you too need to try to figure out how you can have this idea of decentralized command in your life. How can you experiment in your career so that if you face a strategic inflection point, if something is really going to change in a big way, then you can be ready to pivot and to drive through it and end up in a better place. Four. It's going to be emotional. I was surprised at the amount of emotion in Grove's book. Strategic inflection points are hard and they take a toll on everyone involved. This is what Grove writes, quote, it's very personal. I learned how small and helpless you feel. Confusion engulfs you. I felt the frustration that comes when the things that worked for you in the past no longer do any good, end quote. And that's just from one small part of the book. That's from a single page where Grove is writing about the emotions involved. But we have to remember that if people are involved, people have emotions for good and for bad. And you need to consider what those are. You need to think about um, how those can be amplified or de-amplified, how those can be leveraged or hidden, you need to remember that people are emotional. Sophia Anna Maruso said about starting her company, Nasty Gal, quote, sometimes you just kind of explode and hopefully no one else is around, end quote. In 
my book on failed startups, the emotional weight that founders wrote about was always harder than anyone realized. That they failed at something. That they had lost relationships. That people had spurned them or burned them or turned them down was really hard on a lot of the founders who wrote postmortems about their businesses. And Grove writes exactly uh, why this happens. And this is 20 years before all of these startup founders that I looked at had even uh, considered beginning their businesses. This is what Grove wrote. Quote, Business people have emotions, and a lot of their emotions are tied up in the identity and well-being of their business. In many instances, your personal identity is inseparable from your life work. End quote. When Seth Godin was on a podcast a couple years ago, he talked about this. When he sold his company, he felt off because he had always defined himself as that company. The failed startup founders said that they would often introduce themselves as, I'm Mike Dariano from the Mike's Notes podcast. And that's what they would say. And then when they didn't have that company anymore, when they didn't have that thing they were working on, they didn't know how to introduce themselves. It was part of who they were. Early Warren Buffett, who we looked at in episode 24 of this podcast, understood this. He understood that people are emotional beings, and he tried to head off the emotional train before it could jump the tracks. This is what Buffett wrote to early investors in the 1970s. Quote, It is most important to me that you fully understand my reasoning in this regard and agree with me not only in your cerebral regions, but also down in the pit of your stomach. End quote. The pit of your stomach. That's the emotional part. Buffett writes that things are really good and you can cerebralize that there are going to be down years. You can mentally consider that. But once those down years hit, once something happens that challenges your emotions, you need to be able to stick with the plan. You need to be able to do the thing that you said you were going to do. Teddy Roosevelt said he saw men crying when they weren't selected to go with him to fight in Cuba. In episode 18, when we looked at the Chicago Black Sox, um, we saw that players were incredibly upset when they were banned for baseball. Baseball was their livelihood, but it was also their lives. It was the thing that they were known for. Without the demonstration of this, they were nothing. It was amazing to me in Grove's book how many things that he got right about technology, especially writing about technology 20 years ago and not seeing the internet and not seeing social media and not seeing the boom we have in venture capital and founders and a whole host of other things. He got so many things right. And hopefully the four underlying points that we talked about today, the four big ideas are ones that you can apply to your own life or to your own business. Grove makes it clear that life and business are fractal relationships. That is, if you look at a business from a certain point of view, from 10,000 feet, it has to do certain things well. And then if you zoom in on an individual person from a certain point of view, a thousand feet, they have to do similar things well. They have a similar demand on their time and their resources and their allocation of those things. The four things we touched on today is one, you have to be there to know what's going on. You have to get unfiltered data. You have to talk to customers. You have to see the plans. You have to test the supplies. Two, get a devil's advocate to help you figure out hard situations. When a strategic inflection point is coming up, you won't know which way to go, so you need to stress test all of your ideas and 
put them under pressure and see which ones come out the best. Three, decentralized command is a powerful tool. If you hire good people and let them do good work, you will often be pleased with the outcomes. Four, people are involved and people have emotions. Don't forget that you're dealing with emotional creatures and that this is something that we know about and we can plan for. Thanks for listening to episode 31 of Mike's Notes. Very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.